G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to This Week in Startups, Western Australia. In this special episode, we cross over to the other side. Yes, we're in Perth. Western Australia is unique, and the startups taking root in Perth's ecosystem reflect that. To guide us through this undiscovered country, we'll be speaking to some great local talent, starting off with Mac McFarlane, whose UA Investments has been funding companies harnessing big data to drive agritech in amazing new directions. Then we'll speak to Justin Straharsky, whose unearthed accelerator works to remove all the pain points from WA's huge resources sector. And finally, we'll have a chat with Space Cubed founder Brody McCullough. His insights on Perth and the future of co-working blew my mind. That and lots more from the city on the edge of forever on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Braintree, the easy all-in-one payment solution for your app or website, and GetWorm, the place where startups and early adopters converge. First stop in Perth, I was told, had to be Matt McFarlane because Matt's a key man inside the Perth startup community. I'll let you tell a little bit about your story, Matt, but welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks for having me. So how did you get involved in the whole startup scene in Perth, and what was it like when you first got here? Uh, well, when I first came here uh, 12 years ago from Europe, uh, there wasn't very much going on at all in the startup scene, and I got involved in an early-stage startup, uh, which was kind of a social media play, very out of fashion now, yes. but uh, we, uh, we were building a platform for parents to share advice on how to raise their kids, and we raised $2.7 million out of the local Perth startup community um, uh, to do Web 2.0 type applications. So now how did that then end up you becoming a key investor person inside the community here? Uh, through that experience, the main investor in that company um, introduced me to my co-founders in a venture capital fund. Uh, we submitted an application to the federal government and ended up getting up a $40 million fund. Now, what did you do with that $40 million fund? So over the last six years... This is, and this is UA. This is UA Capital, exactly. UA Capital. So over the last six years, we've invested in 10 companies. Uh, six of them are still alive and kicking, and some of them are looking very promising. Uh, we've yet to have our first exit, which is what we VCs hang out for, but mm -hmm. uh, we're looking forward to that in the coming years. Okay, so now that you've been boots on the ground in Perth for the better part of 15 years, what would you say makes Perth different and excellent in its own way from the rest of Australia in terms of startups? Right, well, that's a really good question. So uh, there's a couple of factors. One is it's an awesome place to live. Mm. And uh, if you can give really good software developers an awesome place to live, then you tend to be able to hold on to them very well. So they don't, they're not going to be attracted by the shiny of a big city as much as they're going to be attracted to sort of a lifestyle play, is what you're saying? Well, we keep some because of lifestyle. There are right. others who want to go to the big city. But what, what's happened in the last few years is the diaspora has been returning. <laughs> well, you can't afford housing in any of the big cities anymore. Yeah. But, I mean, as a, as a location to raise your kids, we've got some amazing talent coming back into Perth in the mm -hmm. last couple of years now and people who've experienced the joys of startups abroad. And so that's what's really, I think, kick-started the startup community here in the last couple of years. The other big aspects are that we have five universities churning out talented individuals mm -hmm. and we have very, very large organisations in the form of the mining companies right. and the service companies that support them 
training up people in how business operates. So do you see, is there much of an outflow directly from universities into startups or do people actually, you know, leave university then go to work maybe in a big company for a couple of years and then come out and do a startup? Yeah, so traditionally it is that go work in a big company for a couple of years and then think about a startup. But in the last couple of years, there's a lot more options to get straight into the startup space and a lot more understanding of the opportunities that exist there with the launch of things like Startup Weekend and the Founders Institute in Perth. That's made a dramatic difference to the amount of interest in the community. Do, you, do, you, um, do the universities themselves have incubator programs? Some of them do have incubator programs. They certainly have shared workspace and they're quite active in their commercialization efforts. Some focus more on licensing opportunities, others on spin-out companies. And it's, it's really quite variable between the different universities. All right, so beyond, and you know, resources are clearly going to be a strength here in WA because it's WA and we're probably sitting on more resources in this state than any nation in the world that are still not really discovered. But what are the kinds of, I guess, focuses when people come out of these big companies, either the resource companies or the service companies for the resources, they come out of the universities, what kinds of ideas are they having? Are they the same ideas we'd see everywhere else or do they have a specific sort of flavor that comes from Perth? Yeah, look, again, it's a good question. I would have expected in my time as a VC to see a lot more pitches to me from people who were doing mining tech. Mm -hmm. um, but frankly, there are some great mining tech companies in Perth. They don't really need funding. They're getting, you know, they're right next got to their customers. customers. Yeah, they dive straight right. into their customers. Um, but what we do have is a very vibrant education sector with all those universities. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, we have some excellent education startups that have come out of Perth. We also have, um, you know, the vast bulk of export agricultural um, product comes out of Western Australia. So, you know, we, we export something like 70% of Australia's wheat production. That's a very interesting space for us. Um, and on the health side of things, we have a very, um, a very well digitized health system here in Western Australia. And it's the envy of the world, really. In the, I was going to say, you're reporting. doing better than the rest of the country then. Yeah, I mean, we have studies and records kept for many, many tens of years mm -hmm. um, at way more detail than you would find in almost any other state or territory in the world. So do you have people now doing, say, genetic data mining and that sort of thing based on those records? Yeah, exactly. And we have medical research institutes mm -hmm. and, and we have large drug companies from around the world coming here to do their trials, which is really interesting. All right, so over the entire ecosystem, your investments and everyone else's, who are the very hot companies, the hot startups that we should be thinking about, maybe actually get on the show at another, another later date? Right, so um, in the education space, there's a startup called Sector, which provides um, software for schools. Um, in the in the app space, there's a company called AppBot. It's only a year year old, but it's signed up some of the most uh, recognisable names you could you could ever imagine in the industry. People like Uber and eBay and so on. And what, um, what are they? What does AppBot do? Oh, so AppBot does. Um, uh, review analysis. So if you have an app on the App Store, Google or uh, iTunes Store, mm -hmm. it aggregates those reviews from all around the world, uh, does sentiment analysis, pulls out bug reports, that kind of thing. And it, it works fantastically well for companies who have literally hundreds of thousands of reviews every week. Right, and who are principally dependent on the fact that people are using their app. Absolutely, so. yeah. It's a crucial part of their product management strategy. Gotcha. Uh, other businesses are businesses that I've invested in. So there's a company called Agworld, which does farm management software. So that's a nice little vertical in farm management. So let, let's just, because again, we think of resources, but I think the other thing to think about is agriculture here. Yep. So you have Agworld. So farming management software. Now we already know, and I know this from my years in the New Inventors, that agriculture in Australia 
is highly technical. Yes. It's highly well managed. It's generally the envy of the world in all of those categories. Are we starting to see startups that are not just doing sort of some of the management software, but are we now starting to see agricultural robots and all of that that's coming down the path? And is that one of the areas where WA is going to start to excel? Uh, yeah. Look, the, the robots generally are coming out of people like the CSIRO and mm-hmm. things going on on the East Coast where you have the higher value crops. Mm-hmm. In Western Australia, it tends to be oriented around broad acre farming where robots are less uh, attractive. Well, the, the thing is, is I, I, it may be, in a sense, the way we're using the term because a combine harvester, the farmer just kind of sits there. This they don't. True, yeah. they, now, the whole thing is using GPS. It knows when it gets to the end of the row, it knows yep. to turn around. So the combine harvester is itself. Yep. We don't use the term, but it is a robot. It is in a way. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, the, and the sensors and records that these systems are keeping now right. are a massive data mine that is underutilized. So a lot of the machinery that comes out these days, the USB stick stays in the machine. And... What, what we're all about at AgWorld is helping the farmers to unlock the value of their data. And there is an enormous potential for that. Um, so much potential that AgWorld is now available. It's now used by 70% of agronomists across Australia in okay. advising their farm clients. Right. And we are integrating with precision agriculture companies, which, and the preci- precision agriculture... Okay, now the way, this is yeah, a new no, term. Yeah. What yeah. is precision agriculture? Uh, precision agriculture is basically uh, oriented around the concept that uh, the boundary, the fence boundaries of your paddock are not the boundaries of your soil types. So right. precision agriculture recognises that there, you know, there can be multiple zones of different types of soil that you're planting on. And sometimes you want to put extra fertiliser on one patch of soil in the, in the paddock and less on another patch, etc., etc. So and it's... you can then, with a variable um, rate controller within your device, determine areas where you're going to spread more seed, less seed, more fertiliser, less fertiliser. And that allows you to get substantially higher yields at exactly the same cost. Okay, and it's, it's like microclimates in that sense, right? Yep. Where you, you know, we, but that's a meteorological thing, but you have microclimates in the soil, essentially. Yep. Absolutely. And, and, and Australia's leading the way in this. So well, and it makes perfect sense. Anyone yep. who's ever had a lawn knows that there's patches where the grass grows well and where the grass doesn't grow well. Yep. This is the same thing, but taken up to you know, a huge paddock with, uh, with wheat or whatever yep. in it. And the great thing about Australian agriculture is we do so much with so little. And because we have pretty average soils and very uncertain rains, mm. we've got to make that work. And when we go to the US, which is where Ag- AgWorld has gone, together with partners in the precision agriculture space from Australia, we're absolutely killing it. Like, they've never seen anything so sophisticated or knowledgeable for their own applications. So, the, I mean, it is interesting because I, I do hear this about, a, I mean, Australian agriculture technology is generally considered second to none in the world. Yeah. And yet it's not something that we think of, even though we think of ourselves as an agricultural nation, as a primary producer. Yep. We don't think of the technology underneath it. And in a way, it's the same as the resources sector. Our resources sector is by far the most automated in the world. Mm-hmm. And... We don't, even though we do export it, we don't think about all the technology that makes that possible. That's actually a strength, a fundamental strength in the nation. Why is this? Why don't we think of ourselves as these technology exporters? Um, Look, I think the difference between mining and agriculture is the multinational aspect. So when Rio Tinto develops something that's, you know, fantastic driverless technology in the Pilbara, they can straight away go take it to Chile. Right. Enjoy, right? In agriculture, it's much more eclectic markets. And so when we build something, it tends to be a small business, you know, based in Gundagai and growing and growing. You take it to the US, it's a completely new thing. Yeah. And GPS auto steer came from Australia originally. Huh? Why does that not surprise me? Yeah. 
Yeah, so, um, you know, that, that's why I think there's a big difference. A lot of the technology that's picked up in the mining sector these days is owned by a multinational and can be automatically transferred by that multinational. Across, yeah, across the boundaries. Okay, let's take ourselves forward, say, over the next five years. What are the kinds of things that we should be looking to Perth in terms of startup ecosystems, startup companies, startup ideas? What are the kinds of things you think we're going to start to see break out over here? Right. Okay. Well, I think more of the same in terms of mining technology and agriculture, education. I think in the health tech space, we've got a company called Health Engine based here, which allows you to book a doctor just around the corner very, very rapidly. They've mm -hmm. received substantial investment. They're growing really fast. I think they've got a long way to go. The, the big uh, competitor in the US just recently uh, did a multi-billion dollar um, capital raise. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that's a big space. I think anything where from a small town, you can get big distribution is interesting. So leveraging the app store, leveraging the new distribution channels for software are really interesting out of Perth. It's a lovely little microcosm of the world, and if you can kill it here, then you can go do it really well elsewhere. Which is similar, of course, to what I heard when I was in Auckland, which again, small country, yep. far away from everyone. When do you think we're gonna see the first unicorn out of Perth or have we already seen a unicorn that I don't know about? Uh, not that I've heard of yet but uh, hopefully not too distant future the way unicorns are popping up these days. <laughs> Matt, thank you very much for being on This Week in Startups Australia. A real pleasure, nice to meet you. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. I'd just like to share a few words about Twister Sponsors Braintree, code for easy online payments. Developers around the world have used Braintree's V.0 SDK as a simple way to accept PayPal, credit cards, debit cards, and whatever payment system is coming down the pike. With a single scalable integration, you get robust fraud protection on over 130 currencies around the world. It makes your global expansion a snap. Using Braintree is as easy as integrating a few lines of code, but don't take their word for it. Try out the sandbox and see for yourself at BraintreePayments.com. Now, any Australian knows that West Australia is probably sitting on more mineral resources wealth than all of the rest of the world put together. They don't really even know how much they have. All we know is that they keep on putting it into boats and sending it away to other parts of the world. And of course, we, the other thing that we know about the resources sector in WA is that it is probably the most automated sector of any economy anywhere in the world, that they can do more with fewer miners and more safely than anyone else can. Someone who is sitting at the center of this is sitting across from me, Justin Straharsky, runs the Unearthed. Is it an incubator or is it Justin, what, what exactly is Unearthed? We run a series of hackathons for the industry and we run a technology accelerator. An accelerator, okay. All right, so what do you do, what are you looking for around this? What is Unearthed about? Unearthed is about exactly taking advantage of that unique opportunity that you just outlined, Mark. Mm -hmm. So we find ourselves here in Western Australia and uh, in Australia in general, a huge amount of the economy is driven by the resources sector. We're talking about mining, oil and gas, related technologies and services. Uh, in fact, the Australian government's recognized oil and gas and the Met sector as two of the key pillars of the economy, and they've um, decided to invest hundreds of millions of dollars over the next four years in some industry growth centers. Right? So that tells you how significant those sectors are to the economy. 
Um, and in On Earth, we saw an opportunity because um, not very many tech startups are focused on that sector at all. Why, why is that? Uh, I think that's largely due to uh, stories coming out of more established ecosystems like the Silicon Valley and, and Israel, which uh, have a lot of news about consumer-focused startups. Mm -hmm. A colleague of ours uh, in a local startup called Boundless was commissioned to do some research by Queensland, and he he built what is to date still my my favorite chart ever. It's a it's a chart that shows on the one hand the contribution by GDP uh, contribution by industry to GDP of Queensland, mm -hmm. and on the other the rate of startup formation. <laughs> and it was inversely yeah, correlated. You've got it. You got it in one go. So. <laughs> Well, the thing is, is that everyone wants to do a consumer startup because, well, A, if it works, it's a unicorn, but B, because everyone sees it, Yes. right? And I think this is before people understand that, in fact, if you can develop a business that sells to other businesses, <laughs> you're probably, you're much more likely to be around in 10 years than a business that's selling to consumers. And, and, and rightly, people focused on consumer startups also face um, probably decreased costs associated with starting their business, very easy to reach consumers on the internet, it's much harder to do a B2B and in the resources sector where they've been very slow to adopt new technologies, the challenges are pretty hard. But we think that that speaks volumes about the opportunity. If you can get in, um, there's lots of money to be made there, lots of efficiency, opportunities for efficiency gains right. in the industry, so we think it's a great sector. So let, well, then let's step back and just talk about this market because the market's dominated by a couple of very, very large companies, Rio Tinto, um, was it Ang Anglo-American, is mm. it, and uh, BHP, uh, what's the Swiss company, I forget, uh, there's, a, there's another, there's a few very, very large mining resources companies that dominate. And one would think that if you had a startup, you would just be able to sort of walk down the list. But I know from people who are trying to work with, say, the big four, because they're making fintech products, that the hardest part is actually figuring out who in this organization you need to pitch to. So is that part of what on earth, do you have a master Absolutely. secret list that yeah. you know, says here, this is what we need to do? So it's not, it's not just about a secret list of people, but it's also about how do you navigate the procurement practices mm. of these giant corporations that want you to have um, a tremendous amount of insurance. They want right. you to have a bunch of cash in the bank so they know you're going to be around in a few years. Right. Uh, they are uniquely oriented against being able to do business with startups, they, well, they don't know how to do that. So big, big likes big, yeah. right? Big doesn't like little because it just doesn't get it. So one of the things that we've succeeded in doing is building a community that spans the entire supply chain, not mm -hmm. just in, in mining where you've where you've identified some of the key players at the top of that um, supply chain, but but also in oil and gas. And many of the supply companies in the middle address both of those oil and gas and and mining companies. And so we've got a network of mentors and key contacts who are very interested uh, in pushing new technologies into that sector. So that's, that's been one area where we've had success is building relationships throughout the resources supply chain to be able to adopt new technologies more quickly than they have been before. So when you say new technologies, what are you talking about? What kinds of companies do you see passing either through the startup competitions or through the accelerator? Uh, really, we're focused on the same big trends that everybody else is, right? Internet of everything, Internet of things, uh, mobility in the enterprise, big data predictive analytics. All of those major macro trends that are, that right. are affecting industries around the world right. are coming to 
uh, the resources sector globally, and in Australia, we see that that means $100 billion of impact in the next 10 years. I mean, I would make an argument that with the high degree of automation in Australia's minds, it al there's already an internet of everything in every mind because you have trucks that are robot monitored or robot trains that are robot driven, and there's all of this that is actually means that it's probably in a sense the most mature internet of everything sector in the Australian economy. I don't know about globally, right? But is that, so does that mean that there's more of an opening there for people to produce products and services than there would that's be? A, that's a unique perspective. I think that's one that's not shared by folks in the industry, but right. I think that they'd be happy to hear that characterization. Certainly they're leading in, in those major projects of automation, for example, driverless trucks, as you mentioned. Yeah. But that creates tremendous opportunity. For example, one of the companies in our, in our accelerator is called Newton Labs, and they've developed a unique technology for identifying large rocks as they're loaded into the back of a big truck. Why is that a problem? Well, those large rocks cause, is the, they're the single largest source of downtime on Australian hard rock mining operations, right? So tremendous loss associated with big rocks blocking up a crusher. Ah, now, uh, if, of course. If you've got an automated truck right. and there's no system that tells you what's in the back of it, right. you're going to dump that straight into the crusher and you're going to be wasting money because you're going to have to get somebody out to block it, to free up the crusher. So these guys... get out there with the giant, right. giant crowbar. That's, ex that's essentially what the, yeah, the workaround yeah. is right now. Uh, so these guys have a unique solution that identifies them on loading and can help the right. company reroute that truck to a secondary stockpile. Right. It's got the potential to save a uh, billion dollars a year just in Western Australian mine size. So this is, okay, so, so there's things that almost, I wouldn't say they seem simple, because it's not simple, but it's ways to make an extremely efficient business even more efficient. It's to take all the pain out of the efficiencies of the operation of these extremely large businesses. So they're extremely large, they're not extremely efficient. Now we, we can be proud in Australia that our iron ore operations are amongst the most competitive and efficient yeah. in the world. However, uh, across the sector, that efficiency and competitiveness has dropped by more than 33% in the last 10 years according to government, conservative government statistics. Uh, as commodity prices fall, in addition to that inefficiency, there's right. tremendous pressure to become better at doing what we do and to reduce the cost per ton. Why has the efficiency fallen? I mean, you'd think that they'd be getting an increasingly sort of technological infrastructure that would be producing greater productivity. Do they have any sense of why that's happened? Um, I, I think that there, there's an ongoing debate about that here that probably right. extends past technology innovation into the, into the realm of uh, what we pay skilled laborers in Australia. Okay. All right. All right. So well, some of that has to do with the, the skill shortage. Yeah. Right. Okay. So do you find now, I mean, where are these companies being formed? Are they people who are spinning out of an existing resources company because they got a great idea? The people walking out of university? Who are the entrepreneurs here? Very, very good question. So one of the big challenges that we face Say if we want to run just an accelerator focused on the resources sector, where are the startups coming from? Uh, and as I indicated earlier with my favorite chart of all time from Boundless, they're not, uh, startup entrepreneurs are not focusing on that sector. That's why we have uh, started a national program of hackathons around Australia this year. So we're, we've already interacted with something like 250 Australian data scientists, programmers, and uh, engineers. And we're also extending our reach internationally. So we've got our first online competition going on right now. And in the first two weeks, we've had 130 registrations from around the world. Okay. Uh, so we are actively connecting entrepreneurs to the challenges of the resources sector that right. they would otherwise ignore. So in some, in some sense, we are seeding the top of that 
funnel through our other activities and hackathons and online competitions. And are the big companies active participants in this or are you sort of passively observing their pain points and feeding those in? No, one of, one of the strengths of what we do is that we actively engage with the resources sector companies here in Australia. So we have relationships with uh, some of the ones you mentioned, mm. Uh, Rio Tinto, Iluca Resources, Anglo-American, a whole bunch of resources companies and their supply chain partners like um, Westrack, Caterpillar distributor here. Um, and we work with them to help identify the challenges that are well suited to the type of innovation that we talk about. Mm -hmm. Now that's not the same as the kind of innovation that they do in partnership with universities. Right. 10, 15 year time horizon is completely due to mine of the future or 100% automation. No. The research project. We're talking about um, uh, new innovations that have the potential to make uh, step change improvements in their productivity on the order of 12 to 18 months. Right. So really very, uh, so it sounds like Unearthed is in, in a sense, uh, it's a product development um, instigator, right? You know, it's like you said, you're not the products, but you manage to connect the problems to the people who want to make those solutions happen. Yeah, I mean, we, we we consider that we are building an ecosystem, mm. in a mature ecosystem where you have corporate hackathons running on their own, you've got accelerators focused on key industries, you've got lots and lots of people creating startup businesses. You might not have to go out and build all the, all the bits and pieces and connect them, but we found uh, both a unique need and a unique opportunity here in Australia. And we have to, we have to do a bit of work throughout that, the, the pillars of that ecosystem to make this thing work. So it's, it's interesting because Sydney is now getting sort of the attack of the fintech accelerators, right. right? Every time you turn around, like Stone and Chalk, I think, announced, I have to go check online, but I think today they announced who they took into their first intake and all of this stuff. And we, we see a day coming in the next couple of years where Unearthed is not going to be the only one in town that's doing this. Are you going to now? Are you going to do your job so well that you're going to create competitors? You know, you know. I, I would have thought that we would have had at least a, like a year's head start on others, but KPMG right right around when we were doing ah, uh, so it already happened. And what, what they call an accelerator. Look, we we know the guys at KPMG running this business. They've got something called Energize, which uh, has taken in a, a number of companies. They focus on a little bit later stage than than mm -hmm. we do, but they see absolutely the same opportunity that we do. And um, right now we feel like that opportunity is so big that um, there's there's room for for more uh, activity in this sector. And we're very eager to talk to them about the successes and challenges that they face. All right, last question, bit of a big one. If you had a magic wand and you could change anything about the Australian startup ecosystem to help on Earth out, what, do you, what would you do? Ooh, that is a good question. Look, I, I think um, there, there are many uh, challenges that we face. I had the, the, the unique privilege of sitting on a Senate inquiry about Australia's innovation system mm. yesterday and I asked a, a very similar question. What, what's the role for, for government in this? Where do we make the most impact? And I think um, what, we would, what we would change, where we need the most assistance right now in Australia is really at the top of the funnel and in the very early stages after that. So how do, how do companies go from uh, from zero to one. Mm -hmm. I think once once companies have a bit of traction, once startups have a bit of traction, there are there are international sources of funding to assist them to go to the next stage. We've seen that in our ecosystem already, as companies unfortunately do go overseas to to find talent and and raise large rounds of funding. Um, but if we want to have a robust and mature tech startup ecosystem here in Australia, I think we've got to focus on 
A, our unique competitive advantages, like in the resources sector and perhaps a few others, and we need to make sure that the top of that funnel, that is the, the um, folks getting STEM education uh, and having an interest in applying those skills to, to running their own businesses or going after technology opportunities are there, and that we have um, the early stage support for, for those folks and understanding how to run a high growth technology startup. All right, now if people, if listeners get excited by this and they decide we want in, how do they find out more about what you're doing at Unearthed? The best way is to jump on our website, which is unearthed.solutions. They can find out about our online competitions, about our hackathons. We're going to be in Sydney this weekend running a competition, so we welcome anybody coming down to Fishburns to check that out. Um, love, to, love to hear from community of Australian innovators about how we can help them connect to what is, we think, a great opportunity in the resources sector. Justin, thank you very much for being on This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks, Mark. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. I just want to say a few words about Twista's sponsor, Get Warm. Startups need to attract early adopters before reaching out to a much larger crowd. And GetWorm is the place where startups and early adopters converge. It's the platform where startups can incentivize early adoption through the creation of perks. They can give rewards for being part of that all-important first group of users. If, like me, you're the kind of person who likes to try new things, then sign up as an early adopter on GetWorm and maintain your leading-edge cred while getting some great perks from all of the latest startups. The early bird gets the worm at getworm.com. Co-working spaces are one of the necessary elements in any healthy startup ecosystem. In pretty much every city that I've ever been to that has a startup ecosystem, there is a co-working space at the core. And no sooner did I ask my friend Phil Moore you know, what I should do when I'm in Perth. Then he said, oh, you're going to have to go to Space Cubed. I'm like, Space Cubed? He says, don't worry, I'll introduce you. And I'm sitting across from the founder, Brody McCullough of Space Cubed. Brody, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks for having me. All right, so tell me, what's the origin story of Space Cubed? Um, so I moved back to Perth about five years ago from the U.S., and was looking at you know where do people go to start up their ideas? Are there meetup groups? What's available? And after doing a, a big look around, couldn't really find anywhere that people could go, set up, meet other people, network, and access investors and other support. Um, and having a look at what was being done globally, co-working spaces seemed like a really good way to do that. Um, so from that point, started looking at well. What's it, you know, where does this need to be located in Perth? Mm. What needs to happen to make this, make this get off the ground? And started speaking with a number of other people in the startup ecosystem, or the emerging startup ecosystem at that stage, about what could, what could we do? And setting up a co-working space was one way to, to really bring people together, create a center focal point, and go from there. Now, three or five years ago, you were competing with a lot of other mining industry-related business for space. So did that mean that space was in very short supply at that point? Yeah, it was. So we had a opportunity to partner with Stockland, who were a property group, right. um, where they had some space in the middle of a, a prime building in the CBD, so 45 St George's Terrace, where Space Cube started. Um, and the space that they said, oh, look, we haven't done much with this. Um, we've, it's you know at the back of the building it's the old reserve bank so it's quite a different sort of space as well it's got a bank vault and all those sort of things 
Um, <laughs> that's where we keep the backups. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, it was a, it was an opportunity where we said, well, you guys can partner with us to support you know hundreds of entrepreneurs right. um, in this space and, and make a really usable, vibrant environment. So we sort of did a deal with them to make that happen, um, and over sort of an eight month period, built out the space with the entrepreneurs and the people who are going to be using it. So went through a bit of a co-design process mm-hmm. to get that up and running. What did you learn during the co-design process? What do people want yeah. right? and what do they need? Because those aren't always the same thing. That's right. And, and, and then what do people, you know, want that are, going to, are willing to pay for it right. as well? That was a big one that we learned where a lot of people wanted a lot of things. Were they willing to pay for it? Not necessarily. Right. I think that's the whole lean startup <laughs> idea. Yes. So applying that to and, physical And square, the poor startup idea as well. Yeah. So applying that to physical space was quite interesting, um, where we started with some IKEA furniture, mm. and then as people said, oh, I really like this, we could bring it online. So what we found out was people um, wanted um, permanent desks and, and really also needed that. So they wanted to start in some hot desk space and co-working, move to a permanent desk, then move to team space, mm-hmm. and then access offices and all the normal things that co-working space has. So um, that worked really well. Um, but it took about you know, 18 months, two years to fill up our first space. We then ran a crowdfunding campaign to launch a new space on level nine of 45 St George's Terrace where we raised through chuffed.org um, about uh, $60,000 in 30 days from 250 different contributors. Wow, and are these people who are using the space or are these people who are just fans of your work? It, it, that's what was interesting. It was actually a big mix. So right. um, a lot of people, we, we offered for people to prepay membership and yep. prepay space through the crowdfunding campaign, which is what was, you know, to sort of test whether the market was there, which worked really well. But we had a lot of people, which we knew were out there, who liked what we were doing to support entrepreneurs and support startups, but hadn't really worked out a way to engage. And this was an easy, low low barrier way for them to engage in supporting Space Cubed. So uh, what kinds of companies are there? Uh, is it all startups in Space Cube? Is it more established companies? Is it consultancies? What's the mix in here? Yeah, so we, we've gone quite broad. So it's um, the original plan was to have a mix of social, environmental, technology and creative industries mm-hmm. and you know, sort of see where those collisions, what would, what would happen with that. Um, we also now have some large, which worked out quite well, we also now have some larger companies, so IINet, um, Amcom, Landgate, um, bigger companies that use the space for their sort of innovation teams. So right. RAC also set up its own accelerator program out of here. RAC is like an insurance company. Right. Um, so we've started to see a lot of corporate engagement through Space Cubed um, as them seeing a way to access entrepreneurs and access new ideas. So are they using this as a bit of their skunk works then? It, it is a bit, yeah. So they're putting project teams in here. Right. Um, and I think it's a way to get their staff really engaged and in that mindset of startup, which might not happen in their organizations. Wow. So, okay. Is there a life cycle then for someone coming through? Maybe they start at a hot desk and then they move into a regular desk and then maybe they get a team and then maybe they graduate and move out. Have you seen startups actually move through that cycle here? Yeah, we have. And, and we're seeing it happen more frequently and more quickly, which is great. So there's um, petrescue.com.au, which a lot of people don't know is the one of the most trafficked or the most trafficked charity website in Australia. Wow, okay. I didn't else. know that. Yeah, so they started with just two of them sitting in a co-working area downstairs. Mm-hmm. Then really, um, they left us probably a couple of months ago to move into their own space in Northbridge when they were at this team of five or six. Mm-hmm. So, so we've sort of seen people grow quite quickly um, in that regard. Um, we're also seeing people collaborating and forming their own teams. But it's quite interesting, a lot of people now don't really need their own office space. Right. They can work from anywhere. 
Um, and so we're seeing increasingly people just, you know, just staying at Space Cubed um, because this, you know, they just come in two days, it might be a week, and then they're at client site or at home, and, and that sort of thing is happening more and more frequently. And we're seeing more traditional industries starting to be able to do that as well, not just technology. I mean, as someone who's, in a sense, making a living in this idea of shared workspaces and uh, collaborative workspaces, mm. what do you think is the big trend here? I mean, is will we see this just become the norm for the next generation of workers? And if so, the follow-on question is, what are the products and services that that next generation are going to need that startups are going to have to provide them? Yeah, so I, I can probably just reflect a bit. I just got back from the US yesterday looking at co-working space and that exact sort of thing is what, what is next beyond yeah. this? Because shared workspace, yeah, but is it just a, a quick trend in, in you know, this group fueled by startups or is it something that's a longer term yeah. change? And I think it is, from, from looking at what's happening in the US, I think this is a longer term change. I think it's a generational change. Um, mm -hmm. uh, only 7% of Gen Y workers in the US work for Fortune 500 companies. Right. Um, so I think people are wanting to be much more independent and work for themselves. Some of the concepts that are about to be launched there um, through WeWork, which is one of the big co-working space yep. brands in the US, um, they're launching a We Live concept. So I went to a... Oh my God, you'll be able to live in the office now. That's exactly what it is. So oh. I went to... Um, they're just refitting this building on Wall Street, which ground floor is bars and um, bars, pubs and uh, restaurants. Right. The next six floors are co-working space and the next 20 floors are apartments. So which can be rented month to month. So I think there's this shift that's happening, not for everyone. I was going to say, I have this really ambivalent... I have to know, but the thing of it is, it's really interesting because when I was in New York, um, so I know the folks who do the Personal Democracy Forum, and they set up Civic Hall, and I don't know if you went over there, which is on Broadway, quite near the Flatiron Building. Beautiful co-working space, and they invited me when I was in New York to work out of it, and I did. And the great thing about a co-working space that I've always found is that if you sit your ass long enough, people will come by, and you'll have all of these amazing conversations. I mean, I go to Fishburners sometimes to work, but sometimes because I just want to have a lot of interesting conversations, and I want to be fed like that. And I wonder if that's, you know, if every one of these, or not every one of these spaces, but some portion of these spaces will have that capacity to be able to suit transients who want to park themselves in a space. Because if I could come out to Perth for a month, you know, and work and collaborate on a project and not have to worry about where I was going to live, Mm -hmm. Right. So does this mean that we're going to see, I mean, is that generation and the millennial generation going to have that kind of plug-and-play mobility? Is that what this is offering? I, I think it is. So, you know, if you start extending that out with what WeWork's doing in other spaces, right. it, you know, if you can spend a month in New York, then a month in London, then a month in um, Israel, or, you know, right. all of a sudden you've got that month-to-month -month flexibility to move globally, which you have at the moment, but it's still, you know, there's still barriers. There's a lot of friction. Work. Oh, yeah. Um, I think we'll see a, re a massive reduction in that over the next sort of five years. Um, and I think it will happen a lot quicker than people are expecting as well. Yeah, it's, 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 you're getting my eyes going in that weird direction when I'm thinking too hard because I see that's almost, it's almost as though that we live starts to merge with a sort of Airbnb model, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You know, where it really does become that sort of on-demand accommodation around where I want to work for the task that's at hand. All right. What... You are now sort of sitting in the heart of the Perth startup ecosystem. What do they do here that's good? What's the magic? Why should people come and check this out? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's changed very quickly here, and I think it's starting to mature a lot where we're having 
Startups starting to see the value and the opportunity and what are Perth's big sort of competitive advantages in our big traditional industry. So mining, oil and gas, agriculture, um, some of the things around data that are emerging because of the square kilometre array, which oh, yeah. which you might have heard about. Yes. So the biggest radio telescope being built uh, about five hours outside of Perth. And, you know, it's crazy stats. I could have produced more data in the first six hours than... Just sort of produce a petabyte a day or something yeah, of data. It's yeah, some crazy sort of numbers. Yeah. Um, so the big opportunities around data. Um, so the, I think what we're seeing is startups now starting to tackle some of the challenges of those more traditional and probably considered slow-moving industries mm -hmm. um, through things like Unearthed, which is a mining technology hackathon, um, through those sort of more traditional industries starting to come in and work in these sort of spaces or have their staff or project teams working here. That way they're closer to entrepreneurs who might have new ways of looking at their challenges. Um, so that's really, I think, the big advantage. If you're working in those industries, Perth's going to be a, a growth place for you to come and be close to your potential customers, as well as be close to other entrepreneurs who are tackling those same industries. Do you see locals sort of setting their eyes on the big city and then going off to London or to New York or to Silicon Valley? Um, I think we are for the industries that make sense for them to go and do that. Right. So I've had a few fintech startups coming out of here who have moved to Sydney for an accelerator, then going to London and New York. I, I think that makes sense. But I think when it comes to mining and, uh, and those other industries, mm. I think we'll see people moving to Perth. That this is where it's at. This is where it's going to be happening. So um, also there's some big advantages around time zone. Um, we've had a few people starting to move here. Where you know, are we in Beijing's time zone? We are, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So same time zone as uh, sixty percent of the world's population. Yeah. Um, it's a big one, and multinational companies, you know, if they want to service the whole globe, right. Perth can be a pretty good place for them to station from. Where lifestyle is good, environment's really good, right. and it's what five hours to Singapore, so it's a relatively close. That's it. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's relatively easy to get north. Um, it's easier having just come back from the US, easier than going east. Yes. Um, and, and interestingly, it's also um, easy to get to Africa as well. True. And that is going to be, I think, a huge thing over the next generation as well as we have right. that shift. Yeah, and especially, you know, the industries in Western Australia around mining and agriculture yeah. are going to have huge applications throughout Africa and the rest of Asia. So there, there's big opportunities here. Um, which I think are only going to grow. All right, so in five years, is Space Cubed going to have this entire building that we're sitting in? Is that the plan? Is there going to be you know, levels of accommodation in here? What do, you, what do you reckon? I don't think we'll do the accommodation thing. I think we'll leave that to <laughs> others. Um, also, I think Australians still want the, uh, you know, to a degree, having the, you know, that suburban lifestyle yeah. sort of thing. I think that will change a bit. Um, but our plans are, you know, we're really looking at how do we connect better with schools and universities. Mm -hmm. If we want to make any long-term change where, you know, people can start up their ideas much more quickly and much more easily at, an, at any stage of life. Right. So how do we connect in with schools? And, and talking with schools, they're really thinking about this because sort of the, the social contract of you go to school, you go to university, you get a job is starting to break down. Yes. Um, and teachers and principals are starting to recognise this and sort of having this conflict of, you know, their moral duty, you know, it's yeah. a moral conflict. Their duty of care. That's it. Of so. being able to, you know, train people for a workforce that doesn't actually work the way they've trained them anymore. Correct, yeah. So, so, so talking, we, we're having some good conversation with schools, some good conversation with universities. Um, I think also what we can, how we can support baby boomers who are exiting the workforce yeah. over the next 10 years, have a lot of knowledge and want to do something with that. So I think we'll really look at that full sort of life cycle and what are the different spaces 
what are the different support mechanisms that are needed to support people no matter what sort of startup they're starting and then I, I think a lot of them will trend towards those industries because that's where people have a lot of a lot of experience so I'm not sure what the space will look like whether it'll be a network of space Perth lends itself to that because it's so spread out I think it's about to be the longest city in the world or something <laughs> like that, which I don't think it's a good title to have but it's one we'll have um, so, so I, I think it'll be some some big changes but I, I think it'll all be very positive around people at any any stage in their life having the opportunity to start up their ideas Brian McCullough thank you very much for being on This Week in Startups Australia thank you one of the things you realize when you travel to the far side of this country is that the space out there really allows folks to think of different things. The kinds of startups that I saw when visiting Perth are just, they're qualitatively different from the marketplaces and services startups that are popping up all over the place in Melbourne and Sydney. And while things are definitely on a smaller scale over in Perth, resources and agriculture, those are going to be the backbone of the 21st century, just like they were in the 20th and the 19th and the 18th and the 17th and on and on and on. Perth is onto something, or perhaps it's better to say that their startup community has rediscovered something. They've found a rich vein to mine, and they'll be at it for a long time to come. Now, if you want to see some photos we took over at Space Cubed or some photos of our guests or learn more about Unearthed, well, drop by our Tumblr at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. You're also going to find some more behind-the-scenes photos, some of the old podcasts. Check it out on twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. Big thanks to sponsors Braintree and Getworm. Their support makes this podcast possible. Thanks to Felix Warmoth and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work creating a podcast that is consistently a joy to listen to. Thanks to Matt McFarlane, Justin Straharsky, and Brody McCullough for taking the time to come on this show. More thanks to Leona DeVaz at Space Cubed for lending a hand with all the logistics. We'll be back in a fortnight talking to government ministers, city planners, and community organizers. Each of them are working to give the startup ecosystem in Australia a helping hand. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups, Western Australia.